Today we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 21. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 21. And this is the word of God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you will ransom from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you and we say to you that we are needy. Our hearts long to hear, to know, to experience you once again. And we thank you that it is through your word that you draw near to us, that you speak to us, that you make yourself known to us. So I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come even now and take the written word and write it upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We started a series in 1 Peter last week. and We reminded ourselves that Peter is writing to a people who are going through difficult times. They are living in societies that either ignore them or are openly antagonistic to them. And therefore, suffering is a key theme that runs through the book of 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter, who was an early Christian leader, he's writing to do two things. Number one, He's writing to bring a word of comfort to these people. But the second thing that he's seeking to do is to challenge them to faithful living even in the midst of trying times and difficult places. We saw last week that he begins this book in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 12 by giving a perspective of trying times. He reminds his readers of who they are in Christ and what they have, a glorious inheritance. Today, as we move from verse 1 to 12 to 13 to 21, he moves from giving them comfort and perspective to telling them what they should be doing and how they should be living in trying times. This is very typical of the New Testament. The writer of the New Testament will begin by giving you a basis. After that, he moves on to tell you about the kind of behavior that's expected of you as a Christian. There are indicatives, what Christ has done for you, what you have in Christ. And then very quickly, based on those indicatives, the New Testament writer will then tell you, this then is how you should live. So he's moving from comfort to challenge. Therefore, if you look at verse 13, the whole passage here begins with the word, therefore. In other words, verses 13 to 21 is anchored in the reality of verses 1 to 12. Because verse 1 to 12 is true, this is who you are in Christ, this is what you have in Him, therefore, verses 13 to 21, this then is how you should live. 
Christianity, my friends, is a set of beautiful doctrines that we believe. It is a glorious inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. But it is no less a life that is to be lived out practically in the world, even in difficult times. Verse 13 to 21 is anchored in the reality of verse 1 to 12. And therefore, when you look at verse 13 to 21 in the original language, you will notice that there are three main commands, three main imperatives that structure verse 13 to 21 to help us understand it well. The three commands are, firstly, set your hope. That's in verse 13. The second command is, be holy in verse 15. And finally, the third command is, conduct yourselves with fear in verse 17. So this is how we're going to look at the passage this morning. Hope, verse 13. Holiness, verse 14 to 16. And fear, verse 17 to 21. And all of these commands, we must constantly remind ourselves, are anchored in the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ and what we have in Him through the cross of Christ. So the first command, come with me to verse 13, is hope. Peter says this, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first thing that you need to do in the middle of trying difficult times is to set your hope correctly. Set your hope fully, not just part of it, but fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what is this grace that will be revealed at the revelation, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, Peter has mentioned it in verse 4. This is the glorious inheritance that we have as God's people. In the Old Testament, God promised his people land. In the New Testament, what he promises is a restored and renewed creation. It's what Jesus calls the new world in Matthew 19, 28. Now, why does he call it grace here in verse 13? He calls it grace because this inheritance is something you receive, not based on what you do. It's undeserved. It comes to you because you belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that brings this inheritance to you. It has nothing to do with what you do. And Peter says, if you're going to make it through difficult times, that's where you need to set your hope. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ comes again. When Jesus Christ comes again. Again, Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, describes his grace in this way. He says this, The universe will be rinsed clean and restored to sparkling brightness and dignity as the sons and daughters of God step into a future as secure as it is undeserved. Friends, if you are in Christ. This is the grace. This is the inheritance. This is what you are expecting to receive when Jesus Christ comes again. And right now, at this very moment, in these trying times, Peter says if you're going to make it, if you're going to structure your life correctly, you need to set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. If you're going to make it rightly through the world today, you need to set your hope on the world that is to come. Friends, we're already setting our hope on something 
we're already setting our hope on something or other in our lives that we think can fully satisfy us and can fully keep us secure. What is it for you, friends? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it wealth? Perhaps it's a career. Some of you are starting out in your work. You're really excited and you're expecting so much out of this career. That's a good thing. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a religion. Maybe it's a faith. Now, these are all good things and we naturally need to hope in something for the future. The question is, will these things hold up to the reality of difficult times and to the reality of death? Every single one of these things, good and glorious and wonderful as they are, they are transient things that will soon pass away. Peter is teaching us, God is teaching us, Jesus is teaching us to set our hope on what can never be taken away, what is imperishable and what is secure. He's asking us to set our hope in ultimate reality so that your life is anchored on something that isn't amorphous, it's solid, it's real. And friends, Peter is telling us that this is going to take hard work. You see, the way that this passage is structured, there are three main verbs, three main imperatives. And for each of these three main imperatives, come with it two participles. Now, participles are what supports the verb, meaning this is what you do, and this is why or how you do it. So in verse 13, not only does Peter tell us that we need to set our hope in the, in the grace that is to come, he actually shows us in verse 13 how we are to do it. Come with me to verse 13. He says, firstly, preparing your minds for action. Now, this actually translates an old idiom. So if you're reading it in the King James Version, it actually says, gird up the loins of your mind. Today, we may say something like, roll up your sleeves. Get ready for action. Put on your PT kit. You're going for a run. Get ready for action. Roll up your sleeves. Get your mind ready for some hard work. It's going to take some hard thinking for you to set your hope rightly. Meaning, friends, you and I cannot cruise into setting our hope on eternal things. It's going to take action. It's going to take you being active. It's going to take some hard thinking. But more than just hard thinking, it's going to take some clear thinking. Look at verse 13. Peter says, being sober-minded. That's the second participle. In the original, it just says, being sober. Now, of course, the illusion here is to alcohol. But alcohol is not the only thing that it can intoxicate and dull us to the reality of eternal things. We can be intoxicated and dulled by both the pleasures and the troubles of the current age. We can be so busy that we're actually intoxicated and dulled to eternal realities. And Peter says, if you're going to set your hope aright, if you're going to structure your life rightly, if your priorities are going to be right, it's going to take hard thinking, but it's also going to take clear thinking, uninhibited, unintoxicated thinking in order for you to set your hope right. It's going to take you thinking very carefully about where your heart is and what it's already setting its hope on. You're setting your hope on something, friends. And if you don't be active, if you just go by default, 
it's going to set itself, your heart is going to set itself on something that is transient, though good, and that will ultimately pass away. It's going to take hard and clear thinking for you to think and weed out those things that masquerade as the real thing. It's going to take hard and clear thinking to weed out those things that overpromise but underdeliver. It's going to take hard and clear thinking for you to set your hope on the grace that is to come. But the more you apply yourself to this, the more it will make sense to you. Friends, what is it? What is it that you're setting your hope on today? Do you know how you can tell? It's how you spend your time. It's where you put your money. It's where, it's what worries you in the night. Those are the things that you're setting your hope on, friends. And whatever it is, if it isn't the grace that is to come at the coming of Jesus Christ, that thing will pass away and you will be left without hope. And God doesn't want that. And therefore, he's encouraging us, even in the here and now, to set our hope rightly on the grace that is to be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. Set your hope rightly. Secondly, the second command in this passage is to be found in verse 15. Here, he tells us to be holy in all your conduct. Be holy, not in some, but in all your conduct. The basic idea of holiness, my friends, is to be separate. To be separate from all that is profane. The idea of holiness is to be pure and to be moral. Now, how are we to do this? Well, again, we're given two participles that support the main verb. They're found in verse 14 and verse 16. Come with me to verse 14. Verse 14 says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Or do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. Again, it's active. You cannot cruise your way to holiness. It takes action. You have to say no to the desires that drove your former way of life before Christ. You will be tempted again, over and over again, to go back and structure your life around the desires of your former life before Christ. And you have to actively refuse and say no to those desires. Do not be conformed to the desires or the passions of your former ignorance. Now, the early church father, St. Augustine, he's respected in all branches of the church. Uh, what some people don't know is he lived a very promiscuous life before he was converted to Christ. A very promiscuous life. He fathered children out of wedlock. He had mistresses in different cities. Now, there's a story about Augustine that's probably fictitious, but it illustrates very well the kind of transformation of life that took place in the life of St. Augustine. One day, he entered a particular city that he hadn't been to for a while. A former mistress sees Augustine in the street. She's really excited. So she comes up to him and she says to him, Augustine, 
it is I. Augustine, it is I. Now Augustine acknowledges her briefly, but then he quickly turns around and walks the other way. She's really puzzled. I've known this man for so long. Why is he not talking to me? So she runs up to him again and she says to Augustine, Augustine, it is I. This time, he looked at her gently and he says to her, Yes, but it is no longer I. Yes, but it is no longer I. Do you see what Augustine is saying? He's saying, I know who you are, but I'm no longer the same person. I'm a new person in Christ, and I cannot go back to my former ways. Yes, this present life will tempt you to focus on things that are temporal, but we need to actively say, as Augustine did, yes, but it is no longer I. When temptations come, you need to say gently, but firmly to these temptations, yes, but it's no longer I. So who are you now if that is not who you are? Look at verse 14. You are obedient children. Remember last week we saw in verse 13 that you were born again to a living hope? You are regenerate? That God is now your father and child of God is now your deepest identity? This is who you are, friends. And I will never tire from reminding you of your deepest identity. You are a son. You are a daughter of Almighty God. You are a precious son, a precious daughter of Almighty God, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the second way that we are to be holy. Look at verse 15. He who called you is holy. He who called you is holy. Your Father, the one who loves you, is holy. He's completely separate from everything that is profane. He's absolutely moral and absolutely pure. And he's your Father. Therefore, verse 16, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, friends, when we think of holiness, we tend to think of dullness. Holy people are dull people. You know, they always just wear the same clothes, eat the same food, have no sense of humor, have no sense of enjoyment in their lives. And when we hear the word holy, we think killjoy. Friends, God is not dull. God is the most interesting and exciting and multifaceted being in the entire universe. And when he calls us to be holy, he's calling us to be like him. He's calling us to be who we already are as sons and daughters of the almighty God. One of the reasons that we don't seek after holiness is that we've forgotten who we are. Do you really know and believe in the deepest recesses of your heart that you are dearly loved son and daughter of God? You're no longer a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. And when God says, be holy, he's asking you, friends, not to do something 
abnormal or strange or different. No, he's asking you to press into your deepest identity as a son and as a daughter of God. He's asking you to bear the family likeness. He's asking you to be a chip of the old block, of the rock. I'm not talking about Dwayne Johnson. I'm talking about God himself. He's asking you to be like him, to press into your deepest identity as a son and as a daughter of God. Set your hope aright. Be holy. Say no to your former life and saying yes to who you are in God. Thirdly, the final command is found in verse 17. It says here, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile. Now the exile is a metaphor for life on earth apart from God before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying that our life in God should be characterized by fear. Now isn't that strange? You see, friends, Peter's hearers already had a lot of things to fear. They were living among people who didn't like them, who opposed them. Is Peter now adding another burden on them? You're fearing all these people and what they can do to you? Now there's another burden. Now you need to fear God. No, friends. He's actually giving them a way out of fear. Now, Elliot Clark was a missionary in Central Asia. He served for many years in, an, in, in a society that was not Christian at all. A lot of the work had to be done in secret. He moved back to the United States recently and he wrote a book called Evangelism for Exiles. And he makes a very interesting point. He bases this book on First Peter. And he says that a lot of the things that he applied while he was in Central Asia, because Western society has moved so far away from the moorings of Scripture, some of those uh, things that they've learned, now they need to apply even in formerly so-called Christian societies. Now, his book is really helpful. And one of the things he says here is Peter is actually teaching us to fight fear with fear. He's actually teaching us to fight fear with fear. You see, the reality, friends, is you are already fearing something or someone. You're already fearing something or someone. Do you know who it is that you fear? You fear the person, Elliot Clark says, that you desire the approval of. You fear the person that you want to praise you, whoever that might be, a boss, a spouse, someone you have a crush on. You fear them because you want their approval and you want their praise. And so you shape your life around that fear. You make decisions, you dress in a certain way, you behave in a certain way, you do certain things in order to gain that person's approval or that person's praise. That is the person you fear. Now, some of you say, I, I don't fear anything or anyone. I just do whatever I like. No, friends, you're not so much an individual as you think you are. You are some total of the people that you know and the experiences that you have. And it may not be a particular person or thing that you fear, but you fear a composite of all of that. And you shape your life around that fear. Which means, friends, you want to be free, 
but you're not totally free because you're shaping your life around winning the approval and winning the praise of those people that you fear. So you're already fearing, friends. You're already fearing someone or something or some ideal. And that's not a way to live. Jesus gives us a better way to live. He gives us a better solution. He says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that is what Peter is offering us today. He's teaching us to fight fear with fear. Fear God, and you need fear no one and nothing else. And he gives us two reasons here, two participles again, that help us to understand why we have to fear God. Look at verse 17. Peter says, firstly, fear God because the Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. The Father who loves you is also your judge. And the Father who loves you, who is also your judge, will judge you according to your deeds. So Peter really is saying here, fear God because he judges your deeds. He's not writing to non-Christians, friends. He's writing to Christians. He's saying to Christians, even you, Christian, your life and your deeds will be judged impartially, but judged by the Father who loves you. Paul says much the same thing. The other apostle in Romans 14 verse 12, speaking to Christians, he says to them, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul says again to Christians in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 12, the fire, the fire of judgment, will test what sort of work each one has done. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is an important corrective to many of us who are evangelicals, who are Christians, who are Protestant. Your deeds, your life will be judged and evaluated by God impartially. You will have to stand before God and give an account for the life you live. I will have to stand before God and give an account for the life I live. We, one covenant church, together as God's people, in this time, in this moment in history, will need to stand before God and give an account for the lives that we have lived together. He will not condemn us according to our works, but He will judge, He will evaluate, and He will commend us according to our works. 
although we are not condemned by our works, we will be commended by our works. So as some get by as through fire. So your actions and your choices and the way you live now is not inconsequential, friends. You know, some of us think, you know, we don't need to give an account to God. Okay, that's settled. Okay, now I'm going to just give my life to giving an account to my boss and, and to this person I have a crush on. That's the person I fear. And we make a mess of our lives in that way. And God doesn't want that. This is the words of a loving Heavenly Father who says you're already fearing someone by seeking their approval and seeking their praise. And it's driving you crazy. Focus on the one who you should truly fear. God, the one that we must each stand before to give an account. His approval and his praise is what truly matters. His opinion, not the opinion of my boss, not the opinion of this or that person. His opinion is what truly matters we will each have to give an account for our deeds. And therefore, friends, even as believers anchored in Jesus Christ, we fear God because the God who is our Father is also our judge. But there's a second reason why we fear God. Look at verse 18 and 19. Fear God, knowing that you were ransomed, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Fear God because he's your judge, but also fear God because he's your redeemer. You see, that word ransom can also be translated redeem. And it takes us back to the slave markets in ancient Rome. If you were a slave, the only way that your freedom could be won is if someone paid the redemption price or the ransom price. They would have auctions, slaves lined up. And the one who pays the highest bid price wins the release, ransoms, and redeems the slave. Now Jesus says in John 8.34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, which means that each and every one of us is a slave. We're not truly free. You and I can only be set free if someone pays the redemption price or the ransom price for our souls. And verse 18 says that Jesus has done that for us. And what did he pay with? Not with something precious but perishable like silver or gold. Verse 19, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Friends, the death of the Son of God is what God paid to get you. And this wasn't something that was an accident. Look at verse 20. It says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In the mystery of how God deals with humanity, he had planned from before the foundation of the world to send Jesus to be a ransom to be the redemption price for you to set you free. And that is the other reason why he's the one we should truly fear. 
Number one, because he's our judge and we will need to stand before him and give an account of our lives. But secondly, because he's our redeemer who loves us and has given us his precious son in order to ransom us and bring us to himself. These are the two reasons, friends, why we are to fear God. And when we fear him, we need fear nothing and no one else. I've been reflecting a bit about parenting. I speak as a very imperfect parent. And I've been thinking about this, and I realized that there are broadly two ways that we as parents can get it wrong. And part of it is also you, you kind of just reflect on your own childhood. One way, friends, is to never say yes to our children. But the other way is to never say no to our children. One way is indifferent. The other is indulgent. Now, in indifferent parenting, the parents are cold, distant. There's very little real connection, no affirmation. So the children never ever get the parents' yes. They never ever get the golden buzzer that they're longing for from their parents. That's the kind of parent you get 98%. The friends say, wow, very good. You say, no, 98% by chance. The extra 2% proves he's stupid. That's the kind of parenting that some of us grew up with. We never get the yes of our parents. We never get their golden buzzer. This is indifferent parenting. What happens to our children when we never give them a yes? These children grow up with an intense longing for acceptance and recognition. They become highly driven, but deeply insecure. They have many relationships, but few real friendships. And so they're never quite at peace, never really known, and never satisfied. Now some of us then swing to the other extreme. In indulgent parenting, the parents smother the child with everything. They never say no to the child. But the truth is, sometimes this is driven by our own insecurity. We can't bear to have our children unhappy with us. That breaks our hearts too much. So we just give them everything they ask for. And the truth is, we're not really loving them. We're loving ourselves by loving them. We're too insecure to say no. But what happens with children who never get a no is that they grow up with a sense of entitlement. They grow up with a lack of sense of understanding that their actions have real consequences. And the problem is that they will enter a world that does not like self-entitled people and will make that known to them. And they will grow up in a world that will show them that there truly are consequences to their actions. So they'll never quite fit in, never quite get along with others. Friends, what do we need in order for our children to grow up confident, strong, self-assured? Our children need many lavish yeses. They need to hear that we love them because we love them because we love them. And we do. But friends, our children also need many firm no's. Because those no's will keep them on the straight and narrow. And those no's are our way of loving them even at the risk of them hating us. 
Because that's how deep our love goes. That's the kind of parenting that's centered on true love for the child. One that brings many lavish yeses, but also many firm no's. And friends, if that is what our children need, that is also what you and I need, friends. And that is exactly how God the Father loves you and loves me. As a judge, he often has to give you a firm no. Not because he hates you, but precisely because he loves you. And as your redeemer, he has given you and he will continue to give you a lavish and resounding yes, because he truly loves you. If that is what our children need, this is what we need, and this is what we receive from God the Father. So fear him, friends. Fear him because he loves you. He loves you enough to say no to you. He loves you enough to say a lavish yes to you. In AD 155, the Roman authorities were persecuting Christians because they refused to worship the emperor. There was a bishop by the name of Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. They were coming after him. Initially, his flock, you know, his congregants, they loved him so much, they said to Polycarp, you're already 86 years old, just hide somewhere. Hide somewhere. And so Polycarp hid. But over time, he overcame his fears, and he said, what I must do is not hide. I must face the Roman authorities. And so he surrendered himself to the Roman authorities, and he was put on trial. Now, he was a very well-respected, very loved 86-year-old bishop. The judge looked at him and took pity on him. And the judge tried to persuade him, you're already 86 years old. Just worship the emperor and we can let you go. You can live out your days. Just worship the emperor. He declined. The judge insisted. He said, if you will only swear by the emperor and curse Christ, you can go free. Polycarp said, these very famous and moving words. For 86 years, I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? For 86 years, I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? The judge now threatened him. The judge threatened to burn him alive. Polycarp reminded the judge that the fire that he lit would soon be put out, but the fires of hell would burn forever. Because Polycarp feared God, he feared nothing, and he feared no one else. And so at the age of 86 years old, dear Bishop Polycarp, was burnt at the stake for his faith. Never backing down, always worshipping and being loyal and devoted to his Lord and his Savior. Friends, we may not face the same kind of persecution as Polycarp does, but on a daily basis, you and I are challenged by the idols of this world 
to shift our devotion and to shift our focus away from Jesus to career, to children, even to church friends. What will we need to have the courage and have the vigor to face the challenge of life the way Polycarp did? We will need to recognize that the same king that Polycarp served is also your king. And he's also my king. He's the king who did no evil to you, friends. Rather, he took on your evil and went to the cross. He's the king who is the true judge. And this judge ransomed you with his precious blood. So set your hope on him. Be holy. For he is holy and fear him. Because when you fear him, you need fear nothing and no one else. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to live what we believe. Give us clear minds. Give us vigorous minds that have such a clarity and a vigor of thought that we see futility for what it is and give us such passion that we latch our hearts on those things that truly matter. Help us today, Father, as a people, to turn to you wholeheartedly and live for you because you have given your life for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.